You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to a wide community of creatives across disciplines, photographers, painters, writers, filmmakers, and even policy makers, working within the media and beyond, who have all challenged the concepts of race and identity within their work. I'm Lou Menser, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. This week I chat with Scarlett Crawford, an artist educator with a successful record of working in London's inner city communities and across the UK for over 10 years. She has been the Houses of Parliament Artists in Residence and her photographic work examines the semiotics of race and class by creating images that try to portray narratives of the underrepresented. I've always been passionate about art from a very little uh, child so I've um, but mainly sort of drawing and doing the sort of things that you do as a young child and kind of decided I want to be an artist and I think making that decision at a young age I've really kind of set that intention and didn't want to do anything else but also growing up in Brixton mixed race to a single parent mother um, in the 80s and 90s meant that I was exposed to a lot of political and social movements and changes and also quite successful ones you know where people called for change and got it uh, even within the LGBT community the squatting community so I always felt that uh, no matter how small I was young I was brown I was poor I was that I could actually affect change and it was just about finding the right route to do it um, so kind of moving through secondary school and kind of having to tick boxes where I always was an other was definitely a kind of um, another reminder day to day that there was something slightly different about my experience necessarily to others and then kind of moving higher up through the education system and realizing as the higher I got the less people who had been raised on benefits or the less people that were living in a hostel it just kind of I just saw myself kind of moving away from where I was from but still living within it Um, and I found that uh, most photography was about the other as we've seen and that and that if we were looking at the other it was always from the perspective of somebody that hadn't lived that experience so I kind of Mm -hmm. thought well if I want to do documentary or fine art or make film or whatever it is I need to do it about where I'm from Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of set my mind to saying there's enough stories trauma narrative excitement joy hope within Brixton (laughs) as there may be within a favela in Brazil or in Syria or in Afghanistan or somewhere where we're kind of drawn to these narratives where they definitely like to kind of pimp out our pain or pimp out our trauma Mm. so I thought um and I think so going to university and getting into the art world and, and kind of um, I went to work for after graduating I went to work for EMAP which was a large pu- publishing company for like mm-hmm. magazines like FHM and more and uh, Grazia and that kind of thing and realizing that this isn't where I can kind of leverage the inequalities that I see around me it's not in fashion and it's not commercially so kind of setting my mind to working within fine art but then still coming from that background to choose a career in fine art or any kind of media background without support is a struggle and I've definitely seen that you know you have to be tenacious and you really have to kind of sacrifice a lot of things in order to get there so my biggest appointment I guess at the House of Parliament was when I was about 35 (laughs) and you kind of expect your career to be taking off when you're about 25 so kind of And then obviously the financial crash happened and those things. So I realised that I need to support myself whilst doing this. I decided to teach. But I think in going to teach, I kind of felt like I'd failed. And I think that can happen a lot. You're like, oh, those who don't teach, uh, sorry, those who can't do teach, but going back to teach within my community. So going back to Loughborough Junction, I realised that 
the work I'm making, I want it to be not only about the people that I'm from, but I also want the people um, that, that are like me to kind of be able to engage with the work, to be able to access the work. And in most mm. gallery settings, they're not welcoming spaces for people like us. We don't see people on the walls like that. We don't see people working in arts institutions that look like us. So kind of really felt that I needed to step away from the art world before I'd even got into it and just began to make my work to use in teaching so making uh, uh, things about race and class so there's a project called I'm not Asian mm. or uh, I'm uh, same shit different day where I would actually mm. just take it into community groups and work with young people about okay how can we respond to this and kind of realizing that I got far more uh, satisfaction out of that taking on the title of artist educator kind of made me feel a bit more empowered but also more um that I was able to fairer represent the people that I was working with. It wasn't my ego that I was talking about, and it wasn't just the experiences that I've had. I kind of used the experiences that I may have had um, to, to teach and to facilitate workshops where, you know, as groups, we were able to respond to themes about race and class. Um, and I found that, you know, I found that very satisfying, but also kind of limiting in terms of where the reach goes, because people within the art world see community based art very differently than they may mm -hmm. see fine art uh, and those sort of things. So I uh, I had the opportunity to go to study my do my master's at Parsons in New York. It was always a dream of mine. Uh, mm -hmm. Got into this course and then realized that it was £84,000 to do mm. the course just for the fees alone. And had a real kind of, this was in 2013. I was like, wow, this, what is this? You know, I'm not learning how to save lives. I can take pictures. Like, what are you really going to do for me? And turned my back on the photography world. I was like, I'm not, I don't want to get involved with this. What, what are you lot really doing? Uh, you know, we talk about representation and diversity, but it seems as if it's just a facade, you know, that, that, that if we increase representation and diversity on the face of things, it doesn't seem to trickle back down into the communities where people are experiencing extreme poverty, knife crime, uh, sexual violence, all of those things. Um, so I decided to go to SOAS. And I really think that having that moment of kind of a bit of a wobble in my artistic career and deciding to kind of solidify more of my theory in the global context I guess um, mm. was really groundbreaking for me and meeting people younger people because I'm you know a bit older now meeting younger people meeting people from various different diasporas mm. really helped me to inform my work or re-inform my work and make me realize that these these stories uh, are important and then obviously during that period Brexit happened and Trump happened and we saw a 41% rise in the um, reports of racism and mm. I was like oh I, I felt saddened but also validated that oh this past 10 years I've been making work about race and class it's not it's not it's not imagined it's not a chip mm. on my shoulder we are actually still really going through this and we've just been pretending that it doesn't exist mm. so along so uh off the back of brexit and, and the trump situation in 2017 i got uh i applied for the position at parliament because it just seemed like a perfect way to consolidate my artistic practice my facilitation and community work and then just my political ideas mm. um and it was it was um I was nervous because I, I'm kind of always seen myself as quite anti-establishment. So to enter mm. into a place like that and to trust that, you know, the stories are going to be dealt with correctly or even listened to was definitely, uh, I realised I was that bridge. I had to be that bridge. And, and, and I think that I successfully managed to kind of achieve what they wanted, but also keeping it authentic to the people that I met, uh, you know, and amplifying their stories um, mm. 
during during I mean during the period of the project was when the Windrush scandal happened so I had to kind of mm. navigate that as well mm. uh, but again just reconfirmed why it's so necessary that we get mm. out and really remind people that this stuff's still going on it hasn't changed uh, and in fact it may be getting worse unfortunately so mm. yeah so, <laughs> so, so that that work um, that you did for Parliament you were commissioned by the um, Parliament Speakers Advisory Committee um, to mark the introduction of the race relations um, acts in 65, 68 and 76 um, and so you worked with communities across the UK for that um, and that was to look at how they were impacted by the uh, race discrimin uh, discrimination legislation. Um, yes. um, so what, ca what came from working with with the communities across the country yeah so we um so we went to seven cities uh we went to glasgow liverpool leeds swansea cardiff thamesmead and nottingham um and within those we worked with different institutions such as the glasgow women's library or nottingham contemporary the race council cymru in wales um and we met over 200 people from such a wide variety of backgrounds which you know was really important to me we were expecting to meet people a lot of people from the west indian communities west african communities and south asian communities but we were also able to access the jewish communities and the irish communities and the chinese communities and actually a large population of mixed race people um, who we all shared similar experiences and we all um, similar experiences of not only microaggressions but blatant acts of racism and racism that were coming from strangers in the street but also within our own families yes. and I think that, that especially for the mixed race people that I met within Nottingham and Liverpool and some people in Thamesmead um, that was the most uh, for me on a personal level was the most poignant thing it was that actually as mixed race people before we can even verbalize or understand difference we experience it we see that our parents do not look like us and mm -hmm. there's more people in our family that don't look like us look like us than do so before we've even stepped into the world we understand concepts about race and mm -hmm. uh, and those are not really ever addressed they're not going to be addressed necessarily uh, in school and then they're definitely not addressed in the media or general kind of um, culture mm -hmm. so that that was definitely something that I took away uh, mm -hmm. and you know for for the mixed race people that I met the most difficult thing was being part of the oppressed and part of the oppressor and actually mm -hmm. the first person that you love then becomes the person that you're told is part of a group of people that have oppressed the other yes. person that you've loved or maybe yes. didn't even know so these sort yes. of um, these personal narratives that were occurring and mm. then placing that within the context of it being 1965 or 1968 mm. or even mm. current day. Um, so it was it was the thing that I took from all of the groups was uh, that they don't believe that the law alone can change public opinion, that most people agree that actually the media and not just since social media, um, because a lot of the, the earlier migrants that we met, say in Glasgow, said that they were received really well and that the people in Scotland welcomed them with open arms. And it was only after Enoch Powell's speech and that the media and the news started to kind of exactly the same thing that we're seeing now. And mm. even myself, um, a large part of the project was spent in the parliamentary archives. Um, and I was lucky to discover this big box of clippings from mm. 65 throughout. And the, apart from some of the more racist language that you'd expect mm. to find from those times, there wasn't much difference between what they were saying. They're coming for our jobs. They're coming for our children. You know, so. What was it? <laughs> the dog. 
hungry dog. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so... My dog has a cat. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> the thing that I found was amazing was how much humility, power and strength that all of these different community groups got and how they dealt with such adverse conditions with such uh, humor um, with things like food and music and, and music being such a kind of connecting factor between so many different groups and ways people that kind of got over their prejudices or were able to meet with people within spaces where music was able to be shared um, but yeah on a whole everyone was just like the education system is fundamentally flawed because we know why we're here but nobody else does Absolutely. and the, and, it, and it's it's a choice to not educate people about it you know because you're not only uh, kind of ignoring our history you're also ignoring theirs this isn't black history this is British history um and I think that you know I think the most moving place for me to go to was Liverpool and um because the initial project parliament wanted me to focus on people that had been present during the time that the legislation had come in but I said to them that if we're really going to see what the legacy of this legislation is you have to talk to young people because if the legislation worked then every young person you speak to should be like what's racism you know you know and that was not the case. If anything, the most harrowing stories I got were from the young people in Liverpool. And the 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 I worked with the Blue Coat Gallery in Liverpool, and they were quite dubious to work with us at first, because for the same reasons that you're working with an institution that traditionally has been seen as perhaps not the most supportive of BAME communities, um, the Blue Coat felt that it might be um, difficult for us to work with some of the elders within Liverpool because the tensions are so rife. Uh, there from you know historically so we focused on working with uh, only young people and we worked with interfaith groups and community groups and the young people were amazing the work they produced was you know mind-blowing and they really kind of uh, echoed everything that the elders had said about the need for um the, the media needs to be checked somehow kept in check or uh, you know and that education needs to change all of them were sick of doing one month of Black History Month and mm-hmm. having to write out a poem that they'd written before or talk about Rosa Parks and mm-hmm. you know a lot of people were calling for this understanding of Black British history and that we have our heroes and our own stories that we need to work through here that yes. are very different but no less painful yeah and I find that really interesting as well And I don't know about you but it's um you know as a child you just get educated and obviously you don't think much about what you're taught but then when you have children yeah. yourself and you start to become aware of what they're being taught and they're only it's almost propaganda they're only taught a certain part of history that suits um the structure to keep people the people yeah, in the power agenda that, of the yeah, people power isn't the it going. Yeah. And when, you know when I started to see what's being taught you know like in my daughter's school I just thought okay this is the same old stuff that must have been taught for over 150 years same stuff we were doing exactly yeah, the same, same stuff we were yeah. taught yep. and this is not relevant to all of the children today and this mm. is also not relevant in terms of moving us forward and together as a society this is like a yeah. propaganda machine with its wills very strongly in motion and I I I just you really see it when you're when you're through your kids don't you like and also if we have more uh white friends and white allies our white family members that are honest about things as well and I had a really good conversation with a close friend of mine we both went to the same school and he's white and middle class and he said to me Scarlett uh when I left school I thought that and he comes from a very liberal background I 
was I totally thought that white people were superior to everybody else because we were taught that white people made all these accomplishments in technology, made all these discoveries in in his history and archaeology and all of these things. And he said it wasn't until he left and, you know, kept his friendships with people from school that he started to be like, hold on a minute. This mm-hmm. isn't right. Oh, mm-hmm. Africans did that and Chinese did that and the Indians mm-hmm. did this and what? So, you know, it's it's that kind of thing of like, I don't want to be like, absolve people of their responsibility to learn more or just do better but mm. in the same way we're la- we were lacking our history they also haven't been taught it so it's this I mean after this um after the parliamentary project I left I left feeling like the next project I want to do is actually with white people because mm-hmm. I'm half white I'm half mm-hmm. white I'm mm-hmm. just as white as I am mm-hmm. of colour. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I should be able to enter into these spaces and feel just as comfortable talking about this stuff as I do mm-hmm. with a group of South Asian women. Because, you know, I'm not directly from South Asia. I'm not from I'm not Jewish background, but because I'm BAME, oh, we can mm-hmm. all work together. So that's what I think needs to happen. So much work is is for our communities, which is great and necessary. But are we now producing things within an echo chamber? Is it just yes. up for us, you know, by us, yes. for us? And yes, they're exactly. like, you know, so learned my mum's family's from originally from Scotland. I want to go back to Glasgow and I work with young Scottish kids and young, you know, young kids that are marginalised through their class issues and try to talk about class and then show, look, this is the same thing you're feeling. You're feeling marginalised. You feel you have no opportunities. You feel that you're being shafted. It's not our fault. <laughs> it's yes. them. It's the people who look more like you, but have got less in common with you than a Syrian refugee in terms of economics or in terms of, you know, social mobility or career prospects. So it's um, it's an interesting time. There's what I took away from the whole project is there's a lot of work that needs to be done and yeah. we can't do it on our own um, at all. Mm-hmm. You've hit the <laughs> nail I, on yeah. the head there. Absolutely. Yeah. I was looking at your series called um, I'm Not Asian. Um, mm. So coming from a mixed race background, people often make assumptions as to where they think we're from. Um, so your series, I'm Not Asian, is an exploration of identity and maybe identities that others put upon us or assumptions that they make. Um, was that a cathartic piece of work? Like, was that one of the first um, projects that you did? Um, what, yeah. what, how did that come about? Um, so it was one of the first projects I did whilst I was at university and it was like eight, about 18 months after 9-11. Um, and I really saw a shift in the way that racism was dealt out after that. I mean, at the time, people in Brixton were saying, oh, you know, Muslims are the new black people because they're getting it in the press. And as we've seen now, it's d- developed into full blown Islamophobia across our press and, you know, in a political sense and also. So um, but at that time, it was I made the piece of work in 2003 um, and it was it was. It was an interest. I didn't realise how relevant it would continue to be. And I think, you know, a lot of the work that I made back then is now still so pertinent. And I think especially coming from a West Indian background, but not of the African diaspora. My family was, well, I initially thought we were from the Indian diaspora. So there was so many layers of, of misunderstanding about my own cultural identity you know people be like where are you from I'm half Jamaican no you're not like mm-hmm. oh okay and that, that would be coming from all sorts of people people mm-hmm. telling me oh you're Indian or you're Arabic and I'm just like I'm not I'm culturally mm-hmm. British and I'm culturally Jamaican as far as mm-hmm. I know and and it's this kind of I think within that within you know uh, say indigenous 
British people miss um, miss identifying me. It was also from the black community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was always this sort of thing of like, how black are you? Or you're not black enough. And yes. having to sort of prove your blackness in in terms of and so it was it's difficult I think it's a lot it's difficult if you don't look typically mixed race as well like then Mm -hmm. it then it comes down to like oh are you going to define my identity based on the texture of my hair Mm. is that really what we're gonna you know break this down to um Mm. and then you know having my son my son's dad's also West Indian uh, black Mm. West Indian but my son's come out with light brown hair one blue eye one green eye and he's much paler than me so it's this for me that that's where I think like I mentioned earlier the anxiety comes from about the separation within our own communities Mm. um, about what constitutes being black or what constitutes being me and these sort of these these moving points of identity that could be quite difficult for people to navigate and then ultimately finding out maybe about a year ago I did this the DNA test as everyone's been doing because I was like oh what if it comes back and I've got nothing in me and I've been doing all this work about race and class and and it's actually you know a very small amount of my genetic Mm. makeup is actually what would Mm. be considered black or brown Mm. and then it gets coming back with the complete opposite and coming back with far less I had um you know I had 20 percent south asian Mm. but i also had about 18 percent west african and then realizing Mm. that oh my even within my own family somebody felt shame about their their background because nobody has ever mentioned that there was anybody of west african descent in our family it was always like oh we're indian we're coolies that Mm. kind of train of thought so that wow even within my own family was distancing itself from blackness then as a young person growing up in brixton in the 90s kind of trying to move towards what you were told blackness was so mm. um I think for me doing this project with parliament has kind of not put a full stop on that work but it's made me feel far more able to take my art beyond race now and yeah. beyond race and beyond my class because I felt that I've represented so many people's stories that reflect my own and now kind of wanting to take a step back evaluate and and move forward without that being my main uh, the main thing I and, and trying to meet other artists that are just making art and not mm. because it's this, this is a, I'm a black woman making art about being mm. black it's like you're making art and that's amazing your art's amazing mm. aside from your identity and that's where so I'm moving towards that now hopefully mm. so we'll see well, that, we'll see where yeah. that gets me <laughs> I mean I can't <laughs> see that I will ever be able to separate myself from those those questions but doing it far less in a performative way for other people to understand us it's like I want to do it for me now I totally understand but it's like um, people say with creative work whether you're writing a book or you know whatever area of the creative arts that you're in it's almost like your early work is mostly about the self and then it's once you understand the self that that's when you can uh, and move on to the next stage of the work and I just think it's really important that we that 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 step almost has we're to be allowed latent. to do it yeah, yeah. And we're allowed to do yeah. it we're not held by arts institutions and public bodies it's like oh you know so is this about your experience as a woman of color in the UK it's like well maybe not maybe this project's about quantum mechanics yeah about that 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about yeah. that, actually, that series. So you did a series called Exploring, and um, and this is going to be the last set that I'm going to ask you about, actually, because I'm very aware of, t- of your time, but um, Exploring Quantum Mechanics and the Centrifugal Forces of Race and Class um, was inspired by the Bell's theory, looking at the power of the mind versus the power of society. Um, that is like an amazing series. Can you just tell us a little bit about that before we round up today? Yeah, I mean that I was I've done a lot of spiritual work and looking at things like um, entanglement and and Reiki and past lives and that's just been something that I've always um, been exposed to and explored in my life and never really felt that I could um, express it in in work or kind of make it it kind of seemed a bit out there a new age or kooky and then I discovered quantum mechanics and I was like oh so science does believe in what I believe in as well and and kind of researching that and feeling so liberated by this idea of anything's possible which is basically what I took from quantum mechanics anything's possible um and and uh I don't really get it I'm not very good at maths or physics but there was some beauty that I could see in there that I wanted to explore and at the time I was making the work was when I was applying to go to Parsons and it was I made the work when I had 27p in my bank account and I just found out that uh, the fees to go to Parsons were £84,000 and it was that realisation that yes anything is possible you can go to the top uh, arts university in New York um, and compete with the top people in the world but actually you're still a poor mixed race girl from Loughborough Junction and you've got 27p in your pocket so it was that that's what the project's about so using a light bulb to kind of represent the idea of potential and I I could be throwing it away or drawing it towards me or making it hover above my hand but that no matter what uh, outfit I was in or however I looked kind of wouldn't change the fact that Mm. I was um, brown and working class and what was fantastic for me with that piece of work is that that was the starting piece of work that I used for the parliamentary project Mm. so um, taking that symbol of the light bulb was the first object that I decided to use with the members of uh, the participants in the parliamentary project and then introducing other objects to get them to respond in a similar way like how can we use an object to create a language to communicate a message about our experiences of race to parliament Mm. Um, and and just in the kind of when we step into art galleries, they present us with work that's using this series of Kant and Freud and Sasseur, and we're expected to understand those philosophies. So, so I'm inviting wider audiences who may not understand our cultural experiences to do the work. Like the work might not speak for itself initially if the title doesn't make sense or the description or the image itself. So then go and find out more because that's what we have to do when we're in in spaces where that haven't been created for us. <laughs> <laughs>